Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So we're... We're kind of in between church seasons. We've, uh, we've come through Christmas and we've had the epiphany and uh, Lent looms. <laughs> uh, Ash Wednesday is February 22nd. There will be an Ash Wednesday service in here that evening. We'll give you more about that later on. But what I really want you to know about is we're going to do our annual Lenten retreat, uh, just right there at the beginning of Lent. So Ash Wednesday, February 22nd, and then Friday and Saturday, February, what would that be, 24 and 25, we will have our Lenten retreat. What we do is we go to Conception Abbey. It's about 40 minutes from here. And there is just something about spending a little over 24 hours in a monastery that is good for your soul. The peace begins to seep in. Could you stand a little more peace seeping in? What we do is we, we unplug so that we can plug in. We unplug from the wider world and from our technology and our phones and all of that that's, that's necessary, but you need, you need a breakdown then. You need a reprieve. And so we're gonna unplug from that so that we can plug in to prayer, into the spirit, into the presence of the Lord, into the healing grace that comes from God. And, but you gotta get signed up for that. So you gotta get registered. So go to, go to the website, wolc.com slash events and uh, come and spend 24 hours with us at Conception Abbey. Unplugged from something, but plugged into something else, something other, something something above, something higher. Uh, it's, 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 you know, we've never done it that wasn't just good for your soul. And it's such a good way to begin the season of Lent. So that's, that's my announcement. Um, today I want to talk about how Jesus Christ is the true lens of Scripture. So let's get started in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. I want to talk this morning about how, as Christians, we should read our sacred text. Second Timothy tells us that all scripture is inspired by God. That is, that it's God-breathed. That's, what's, that's what that phrase means. You might think of it like this, the divine breath can be sensed in the sacred text. You ever 
open up a Bible and think, oh, I, I, I'm in the presence of something that is holy, something that is other, something that is not the same as just going online and reading this, that, or the other thing. Yeah, the, the divine breath can be sensed in the sacred text. So we, we, we speak about the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, but but that the inspiration of Scripture should not be thought of as God dictating to scribes. I mean, how, how does Genesis come to be? It's not, yea, Moses, take now thy quill and thy papyrus and write. In the beginning, I created, well, don't say I, say God. So it's not like that. Rather, um, you, you might, we might think of it as a collaboration between the inspiring spirit and the human author. A, a collaboration, a dance, a cooperation between the inspiring spirit and the human author because the human author is not obliterated. You can sense the presence of the human author in the text inspired by the Spirit. So in the various books of the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible with its however many authors, we don't know for sure, we see the ideas and opinions and even personalities of the authors continue to shine through. So for example, we have four Gospels. Think about how different Mark is from John. They're both inspired. They're both telling the story of Jesus. They both culminate with that which matters most, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. But they're very different. And you can see their thinking, their theology, their emphasis. That's not obliterated. Think about the difference between Paul and James. You know, Paul has 13 epistles. James has one, but we have James. James, James is very practical and he writes very, very simple Hemingway-esque blunt sentences. Faith without works is dead. That's James. He'll say things like that. Uh, Mercy triumphs over judgment. We sang that today. That's Paul, on the other hand, <laughs> writes these long, complicated, paragraph-long, single sentences this is, a, this is a logician at work, and you have to really work at following his whole... So they're both inspired, but we don't lose the sense of the author. Uh, the various psalms have various personalities and so on and so forth. So, inspiration. <clears throat> we, part, of, part of why a text becomes part of the canon of Scripture, becomes canonical is that we sense the inspiration that sort of swirls around it. We, we're aware of it. And so we talk about an inspired text. Amen. But that doesn't mean that we come to the Bible with this trite little aphorism, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That actually doesn't settle much. That doesn't really get us very far. You can say that. I think, there's, I think it's often well-intended but it's an oversimplification that really doesn't help us much at all uh, because the inspired text, listen to me, still has to be interpreted. It, it, okay, we, we have what is written, but we still have, what does it mean? <laughs> there it is, it's written down. You can say, I believe it, all right, 
But what is it you believe? You, to, to arrive at that, there has to be the engagement of interpretation. And interpretation, let's be honest, uh, I, I've been at this for over 40 years, and it's not easy. This is not a simple book. Or this, this, this library of books is not a simple library to necessarily get a hold of. Now, some people try to avoid the rather daunting at times, at times, task of interpreting Scripture by just saying, well, I just take the Bible as it is. No, you don't. Uh, first of all, first of all, the Bible as it is is written in ancient languages you don't know. Here, I got a picture of the Bible. There it is. That's the Bible as it is. That's Genesis 1 in case you didn't know and you didn't. So, so obviously we're not taking the Bible as it is because first of all, we need a translation of it because it's written in ancient biblical Hebrew. It's written in Koine Greek. We don't know those languages. And even in, maybe a few of you do, but if even if you, even if you invest the very, you know, demanding, time-consuming effort to become a biblical language scholar, you're still not done, because still interpretation awaits. And then you have to realize that we all, all of us, even even if you have access to the biblical languages. You're still reading through all kinds of lenses. I mean, our time is not the time when Jeremiah was composed. And so there's just a different way of thinking about things. Our time is not the time when Philippians was composed. So we're, we're reading through historical lenses, linguistic lenses, cultural lenses, theological religion uh, lenses, religious tradition lenses, political lenses. And on and on and on it goes. So, so we, we're reading the scripture, we're coming to it, but there's this series of lenses that we are reading through that influence how it is we interpret what it is we're reading. So this is all, this is all, this is all true. And, and one of the things you can do is, is maybe try on different lenses by reading it in different translations mixing it up, reading the commentaries or what, what, what people from the best various traditions, what do the Catholics say, what do the Orthodox say, what do the mainliners say, what do contemporary scholars say, what do popular interpreters say. There's all kinds of ways you can try to, you can't escape the lenses, but you can try on different ones and see what brings it into focus. Now, this is all true, but it's not really what I want to talk about. <laughs> I, I wanted to get that out of the way, but it's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how Jesus Christ is the true lens of scripture. Not the only lens, but the ultimate lens. When we read the Bible through the lens of the crucified and risen Christ, the Bible gets better and better. I mean, there's a way to read the Bible that's, that it isn't always very good. There is a way to read it there's a lens through which to read it that the scripture becomes alive with good news. Amen. Let's look again. 2 Timothy 3.15. And how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith 
in Jesus Christ. Now, the sacred writings of Scripture referred to here that Timothy has known from a child are what we call the Old Testament. When the New Testament speaks of Scripture, it's not being self-referential. It's speaking of what the first Christians had as their only Bible. That was the Hebrew Bible. And so what's, what's being referred to here, that, that Timothy has from childhood been acquainted with sacred writings that are able to make Timothy wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That, but that's talking about what we call the Old Testament. And so those scriptures are about Jesus Christ, according to 2 Timothy. But Jesus Christ doesn't appear in the Old Testament, or does he? All right, let's continue, let's continue to look at this. Um, the most important thing I can tell you about interpreting the Bible is that the incarnation of the Word of God, the Logos of God, what we've just been celebrating through Advent and Christmas, that the Word, the Word of God, the ultimate Word of God, which is Christ, became flesh. That event, the Word becoming flesh and the death, burial, and resurrection of the Word made flesh, who is Jesus Christ, reading Scripture through that lens changes everything. Every, you, you end up with a brand new Bible. So on that first Easter, you, you have <clears throat> the followers of Jesus who, like Timothy, most of them, have known the scriptures. They've been acquainted with the scriptures. They can talk about the scriptures. They know what the text says. And then Jesus is risen from the dead and they have a brand new Bible. I'm talking about what we call the Old Testament. They have those 39 books. Genesis through Malachi. They're varying levels of acquaintance with them all their life. And then Jesus is raised from the dead. And they have a brand new Bible, even though it's the same Bible they've had for centuries. When read, when read, when we read, that's a typo. I love it when I put a typo, though they corrected it. When we read the Bible through the lens of the crucified and risen Christ, we gain a new Bible. I'll show you how it works. We're going to go to Hosea. Hosea. He was a 8th century Hebrew prophet. So, you know, he's in the 700 BCs, 700 years before Christ. And probably the most famous thing about Hosea is that he is the prophet who married the prostitute. Did you know that story? Well, there's some weird stuff in the Bible. And uh, not, he didn't like marry a repentant prostitute. He married a working <laughs> prostitute. In a, in, a, in a crazy act of prophetic theater, as it were, I mean, this is, this is pretty extreme, Hosea is going to experience in his marriage what God experiences with adulterous and idolatrous Israel. That, that's, that's commitment to your ministry right there. I'll, I'll tell you what. Uh, and so Hosea was, you might guess that Hosea was something of a conflicted man. <laughs> uh, 
And he was. And Hosea's prophecies oscillate wildly between tender expressions of love and scathing threats of judgment. I mean, sometimes they're, they're, they're very, you know, so there's, there are moments in Hosea that are very tender expressions of love. And then there are other moments where there's just, it's just scathing threats of judgment. Now in chapter 13, near the end of the book, Hosea castigates the northern kingdom of Israel for their idolatrous worship of the Baals, the false gods of the Canaanites. And I want to read a couple of lines from that passage. This, this, this prophetic poem, Hosea-inspired, responding to the spiritual adultery of Israel's idolatry. Hosea 13, 9. I will destroy you, O Israel. Who can help you? Verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your destruction? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So, so there's this threat of judgment. I will destroy you, O Israel. Who can help you? Followed by a series of rhetorical questions that spell doom. God says to Israel, I will destroy you, O Israel. Who can help you? I mean, you know, we know that New Testament verse, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is against us, who can help us? I will destroy you, O Israel. Who can help you? And then, the, then there's these series of rhetorical questions that spell out doom. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? No. Shall I redeem them from death? No. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, they're coming. Oh, Sheol, where is your destruction? It's coming. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. If you encountered God, who appears to be angry with you, and he says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. How are you going to feel? All right, so this is a text that, uh, with its initial reading, now if we just take it as it is, you know, we take it as it is, here in Hosea 13, uh, it appears as nothing but bleak and foreboding that death and shield, death and hell, are Israel's inescapable fate. But that's not the final word on this text because it will appear, it will reappear, it will reappear 700 years later in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul, in his letter to the first Corinthians, or to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians. Okay, so let's, uh, let's look at that. Let's go, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. But since we're on our way there, let's, let's just stop by. It's, it's on the way. Let's stop by Luke chapter 24. It's on the way. And Luke 24, is, um, it has the Emmaus Road story. Oh, I just love this story. This, you, know, you know this story. This is uh, the first Easter. Christ is risen. Not many know it. You got these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're leaving. 
brokenhearted, disappointed, crestfallen. They're talking about what has happened. Jesus comes and walks with them, <laughs> but they don't recognize him. Their eyes are prevented from recognizing that to, 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 to these Emmaus Road disciples, Jesus is just some fellow traveler on the road. And the traveler says, you guys look sad. Man, what happened? And they say, well, are you the only one that doesn't know about the things that have happened? What things? The things about Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, tell me more. <laughs> and they tell the risen Christ, who they don't know is Christ or risen. But well, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a mighty prophet indeed. And, uh, but, but he was betrayed and he was condemned and he was crucified. It's been three days. And we were hoping that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Verse 25. Then he, Jesus, said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted. Oh, there's that word interpreted. He interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. So we can't just take the Bible as it is because we have to interpret it. We have to have help with the translation and all of that and get some access to it. But even then we still have to interpret it. And Jesus tells these disciples on Easter on the Emmaus Road that you interpreted it as about me. Well, he doesn't say me, he says about the Messiah, but they don't know he's the Messiah yet. All right, they get to Emmaus. It's like a two-hour walk. Jesus has been talking about how the scriptures are about Messiah. Jesus acts like, well, I'll see ya. I'm going to be on my way. And they say, oh, no, no, look at the time. It's far too late. Uh, you, you've got to come in and have dinner with us. Oh, Okay. And Jesus comes in. They still don't know it's Jesus. They sit at the table with him. It's time for supper. And then Jesus sort of, I don't know, it's kind of a breach of etiquette that he's the guest, but he acts as the host. And he says, oh, I'll just, I'll just bless this bread here. And he takes the bread and he blesses the bread and he breaks the bread and he begins to offer them the bread and their eyes are open. They recognize him and Jesus vanishes and the bread just falls right there. There. Right there. Christ present with us. And then what do they say? Verse 32. Then they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we were, while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And I promise you, these, these two disciples knew the scriptures, but they had been, somehow they were closed. They knew what the text said. They knew the stories. They knew the, the Torah and the prophecies and the writings, but they were, they were closed. And this stranger walks with them and says, no, it's all about Messiah, and begins to open them up to them. And they said their hearts began to burn within them. And then they said, well, we've, we've got to go back to Jerusalem and tell everybody. And so they rush back. They get back to the upper room. They're telling what they know. And Jesus appears in their midst. Peace be with you. He says a few other things. And then verse 44, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. All scripture finds its fulfillment in Christ. If we don't see a particular text as Christ-like or maybe just say fulfilled in Christ, we have not yet interpreted it correctly and thus we have very little to say about it. Either we find a way to conform the scriptural text to Christ or we leave it alone until we can because Jesus Christ is the true lens of scripture. Or we might say Jesus Christ is the final arbiter of scripture. What does scripture mean? That's the task of interpretation. Well, it means something about the ultimate revelation of who God is, which is found in Jesus. All right, now we can... Now we can go all the way to 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to chapter 15. This is Paul's great treatise on the resurrection. At the very end of that, he says this. 15, verse 54. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Come on, have you just heard that? He's quoting from that doom and gloom passage of Hosea. But Paul is turning it on its head or turning it right side up. Maybe it was on on its head to begin with. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Ah, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did I not tell you that if you will read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, it gets better and better? This is, this is a great example. It's not the, there are many examples like this. You see some in Romans 15, other places where Paul is taking texts that you thought were one thing and says, no, 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 no. We bring it into the light of Christ. We, we make it about Messiah. We bring it in. It, we, we, we interpret it in the light of the crucified and risen Christ. And it turns out to be good news, not bad news. What we thought was bad news. Oh, we were misreading it. We were in the dark. It was closed. It was veiled. And now we see, no, it's all good news. I mean, I, wanna, I don't want to leave this yet. So, so Hosea, in Hosea, it's a series of rhetorical questions that spell doom. Shall I ransom them from the power of shield? No. Shall I redeem them from death? No, because, because in Hosea, God is depicted as being so angry at idolaters, adulterers, Israel, that there's, there's no hope. Shall I redeem them from the power of shield? No. Shall I redeem them from death? No. Oh, death, where are your plagues? They're coming. Have you got your plagues, death? Yeah, I got them. All right, let them have it. Oh, shield, where is your destruction? I got it. All right, let it loose on them. Why? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. My commentary, yikes. I mean, what are you going to say? If God says to you in wrath, compassion is hidden from my eyes, yikes. But in 1 Corinthians, doom is turned into victory through Jesus Christ. 
Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I would would applaud the Lord for that. I mean, if nothing else, it's like, whew. I thought I was doomed. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I will destroy you, O Israel, who can help you? I will destroy you, O Israel, who can help you becomes, I will destroy you, O death, and I will help you. I will destroy you, who can help you becomes, I will destroy death, and I will help you. Praise the Lord. Well, as I mentioned, this is just one example of how scripture can change when read through the lens of Christ. Paul, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 3, says that the scriptures are veiled until the veil is taken away in Christ. And the primary task of scripture is to point us to Jesus. And that's what the Bible does inerrantly, is to point us to Jesus. The Bible doesn't ask us to believe the Bible. The Bible asks us to believe Jesus, to put our faith in Jesus. And if the Bible doesn't get us to Jesus, listen, if the Bible doesn't somehow get us away from just the Bible itself, remember Jesus said, you search the scriptures, you think they're going to save you. You think in the scriptures you have life. No, they are that which points you to me. So we've got to come to Jesus. But if we don't, if somehow, if somehow the Bible doesn't get us to Jesus, it can easily become a weapon of death. Paul says that. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. God has made us competent to be ministers of the New Testament, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. David Bentley Hart, in his translation of the Greek New Testament, makes the point crystal clear. He translates that verse. God made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of Scripture, but of spirit. For Scripture slays, but spirit makes alive. Now, Paul is is being very provocative there. He's making a point. You keep that in about scripture. Scripture is immensely profitable. It's inspired by God. It's profitable. It's immensely profitable, but only if it leads us to Jesus. In the wrong hands, because Paul talks about how we've been made competent. There are, there are incompetent preachers of the word. I, I've heard them. In the wrong hands, Scripture becomes a weapon of condemnation and death. How many of you have ever been beat up by the Bible? You know, you show up in church and you just bam, bam. I mean, the most famous beat up with the Bible sermon of all time is sinners in the hands of an angry God. There's plenty of Bible in it. Not near enough Jesus. And some of you still bear scars from a weaponized Bible. 
I know this. And some of you online with us, the reason you're online with us is you're trying to recover from the bruises and the wounds and the scars of being attacked by somebody wielding a weaponized Bible. I know this. I mean, I'm looking you right in the eye, as it were, and I know this. It's true that Scripture without the Spirit of Christ slays. In other words, that which is to create faith can actually kill faith if it's handled that way. Scripture can create faith or it can kill faith depending on how it's read and how it's handled. I mean, the book of Revelation is a great example. Read wrong, read in the, read, you know, in all the blood moons nonsense stuff. Revelation, you, you, could, you could say of the Bible, fear comes by hearing and hearing by the Bible. But it's not fear that's supposed to come, it's faith that's supposed to come. But it has to be in the hands of those that are competent. And so to you, here, online, who have been wounded by perhaps even well-intentioned but incompetent ministers wielding scriptures as a weapon of death, I'm going to say this to you. I'm going to say this to you. You don't have to give up on the Bible. You don't have to give up on the Bible. You just need to find a better lens to read the Bible through. And the ultimate lens, the true lens of Scripture is Jesus Christ. And the single greatest revelation of Scripture is this, that God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. Now, you might not know that reading Hosea 13, still kind of in the dark, still kind of veiled. We haven't always known this, but once we get past death and resurrection, once we get past Easter, then we do know this, that God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. Never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do, and that's the best news. Amen. Stand up with me. Now let's come to this table where Christ is present with us in the bread, in the wine, communicating to us his flesh and blood, his very life. Join with me, first of all, in confessing our faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. 
For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And God is not mad at you. The wrath of God is divine consent to the destructive nature of sin in our lives. But God is not mad at you. God loves you. Compassion is not hidden from him. God is compassion. And it's found in Jesus Christ. God is merciful to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy as you have just done. So I say to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.